0: You're listening to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Australia Culture Podcast. I'm Alex Spring and I'm here with the Culture team who are each gonna tell us what they do. Nancy.
2: Hi, I'm Culture Editor of Guardian Australia. Monica? I'm the Deputy Culture Editor. And ah. I'm a researcher and writer.
1: Nancy and I have just come back from Melbourne Festival and we saw a number of shows and there were some interesting ideas that came up after seeing those shows.
3: Yeah, there were some big uh, big name collaborations that were going on at the festival this year and we kind of wanted to talk about this idea of collaboration. What makes a good one, what makes a bad one and whether or not it's just actually a buzzword around at the moment and it's kind of what's always been
1: going on. There's also a great deal of melding between reality and drawing on actual events in order to create art and pop culture. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that.
3: And then there were some really intriguing shows that we've seen both at the festival and beyond that have tackled old age and age in general. Um, And we wondered if this was a new trend or whether it was a taboo finally being broken. We definitely want to chat about that.
1: And then finally, because there's so much happening at this time of the year and there's so much coming up, we wanted to work out what everybody's looking forward to for the month of November. Mm -hmm. One of the headliners at the Melbourne Festival was a show called Complexity of Belonging. Um, And it's, it's actually the fifth collaboration between Chunky Moves' artistic director, Anouk Van Dijk, and playwright folk Rickner. Um and I it was a mix between contemporary dance and spoken word and it, it's about the isolation and loneliness of modern cities. Did you like it? I really liked it actually. Um there's some really interesting pieces there is a there's a really funny monologue about a a woman who is telling her therapist about what the qualities that she wants in a man. And it's everything from him understanding her interest in Reiki and crystals and being able to make really great risotto and ride a horse. Which, um, which, and while she's saying this, she's sort of hurling herself around the stage, which is uh, quite dramatic and really funny. And the audience were really with her and, and they, they really enjoyed it. But, uh, but I don't think everybody enjoyed it.
3: No, the critics, I think, were a little mixed on this one. Um, our own Van Baden, uh gave it a healthy two stars. And, and she did say, you know, aspects that were interesting and, and, and that she's not averse to the idea of those two art forms mixing, but that maybe uh, it was neither one nor the other. It's something very much got lost in it. Probably the narrative. I think it was very hard to work out sometimes what the hell was going on. <laughs> um, and so at times, you know, what what sort of sounds on paper like a really interesting collaboration was just a bit more of a hot mess.
1: Well, that was it. I mean, what was interesting was how these two collaborated together. And they've actually had a really long partnership. They've been working together since 1997. They started working together when they were both starting out in their careers. And they were really interested in what the ideas that they wanted to explore, how they translated to other art forms. Um, now, obviously, Anouk is based in Melbourne, Whereas Falk is actually in Germany, so it took them a number of years to actually develop this work, and uh, it happened in various workshops, and uh, and they actually also drew on the performers' own experiences for the actual stories too. So it was it was really interesting. Um, I actually asked Anouk about what what makes a good collaboration. When the one doesn't know what to do anymore, the other one steps in, <laughs> and vice versa. I think then it, that works really well with us. Um, also, we keep each other sharp, like. Falk will not be impressed by the incredible craft that needs to make dance, and I'm not impressed by the incredible
0: craft that needs to write a text. So we can feedback. We can give clear feedback to each other on, um, you know, this is too long. This can be shorter. Um, so in that sense, you know, we are also a bit, you know, simultaneously helping each other with um, editing the work.
1: One of the other things I asked Anouk was whether you have to actually be in the same room together to collaborate and she said uh, you don't have to but it, it definitely helps.
3: I suppose that's quite pertinent to the theme of the show though which was about this disconnected world, social media, the way we all are. So in a way interesting that they sort of the way they made the show formed what it was. It, 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 to me that sells it a bit more. I'd be interested to have seen it in that respect because we all feel this feeling about social media and and and, and sort of operating by ourselves and and coming together to make work even across the distance of Germany and Australia. Yeah,
1: well, it's actually funny because you say that because there's a very interesting scene where they are um imitating a conversation over Skype and the one of uh, there's a the therapist is talking to her husband and he is basically having a meltdown over Skype and he rants at at Skype about how empty his life is and how soulless and how he misses her and he loves her and all these things and and then at the end she obviously says what you you were frozen on Skype what actually happened there so it, it it was a great it's a great story but yeah it's it's a very common experience i think and that's actually what i really enjoyed about the show
3: i think i've read some articles about people making sort of theater over Skype too there's quite a lot of this at the moment but some part of me does get a little bit allergic to the idea i'm just like why can't we make stuff the way we've always made stuff because ultimately people didn't start collaborating uh, when they had the technology to do it they've always been doing it uh, the kind of cliche of a of a writer or an artist in his kind of garret is, is that it's a cliche um, we have a really lovely uh, series that we run on the Guardian website uh, called why I love which is artists in one form um, art form, talking about people they admire in another and I think uh, you see that come out in a lot of work now you know people collaborating on albums and, and, and shows uh, uh, but you know the admiration the, the curiosity in other people's work is always there for an artist because I think curiosity is what probably defines an artist more than anything else
1: And they actually draw inspiration from the other artists as well and they develop a language. The show that is running at the NGV at the moment is the Express Yourself, which is Romance Was Born... Um, fashion Designers, the exhibition is for children and uh, they, throughout their career, almost 10 year career they've always worked with artists from everybody from Del Catherine Barton to Kate Road to Nell and uh, and they've actually now j- developed a shared aesthetic with Del Catherine Barton where initially she was this fam- fabulous artist they now share a lot of things which I think is a sign of good collaboration too
3: And how amazing that that can get put into what is ostensibly a little gallery show for kids you know, yeah. some mm-hmm. complex ideas behind it and stuff that hopefully whether they know it or not will feed through to all the little eight year olds wandering around their galleries
1: what do you think makes a good collaboration
2: um i think, I think that while people can collaborate really well in different art forms, some people collaborate with the same artist' practice as well where they kind of their work depends on the other one to exist um one example i always think of is Clark Beaumont who are a duo from Brisbane they were the only Australian artists included in John Cowdor's 13 rooms last year and they're performance artists and their work for that show was them in a room quite a small room and they both shared a plinth so they were either sitting or standing on this plinth for the whole duration of the exhibition Um, so in that work they were kind of referencing their own collaborative process physically through their work
3: Sounds really interesting. I shouldn't probably say this, but it also sounds like a Big Brother challenge I saw a few weeks ago <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where they had to share a tent. <laughs> but um, what did
2: you actually see them in in, in process? Yeah, I did. I did. It was, um, it was quite powerful and it was very quiet in the room and it was quite a small room. So you were qu- up close to them and it was kind of that weird physicality of them being on a plinth and are they an artwork or... Are they people? It was quite strange, but very good, very effective.
0: I guess the best example of collaborations are bands, really. I mean, that's an example of kind of a group of people who end up working together sometimes for decades if you've got someone like the Rolling Stones. Um, It's funny because I'm a writer and I've always had trouble with the idea of collaboration. I'm not really a team worker and um, sometimes I find it... I'm fascinated by the idea of how someone... Of how a group of people do come together and and work together because I don't understand how you concentrate on even making anything when you've and or how it can be anything but a mess when you've got a, a group of people coming together. So I'm interested as an artist Anna, if you've done any collaboration.
2: I've done some some very brief collaborations. It's more like kind of one project will be i work with someone else. I worked with a fashion designer once and I made some designs and we printed them on fabric and then she mag- made clothes out of them. Um, and that was really good, it was successful, but you always have to be prepared to not have your own way and to give away part of your practice.
3: And Monica's right, I think. Writers maybe, I know we do get kind of collaborations, you know, you get those books where everybody writes a chapter and kind of consecutive narrative, but it's probably an art form where you, s- maybe the Garrett cliche is kind of true uh, a little bit more.
0: One of the other
1: interesting things that Nick said is that you know you have to trust that person as well and you have to accept their honest opinion and you have to know that they actually are being honest obviously with your best interest at heart. and, uh, and they're not always going to agree with what you say, but um, but eventually people come come to a consensus of sorts. You're listening to the Guardian Australia's Culture podcast.
2: If you want to hear more about that show, go to theguardian.com and click on culture.
1: One of the other really interesting shows that I went to see was called Team of Life. And uh, this show was developed by Cage, which is a contemporary dance movement company in Melbourne. And, uh, And they draw a lot from real life. So I have, um, the team of life itself is inspired by the true story of David Vincent, who was a um, child soldier and who was a refugee who moved to Melbourne in 2004. And uh, I spoke to both Kate and to David Vincent as well. And, uh, and I asked Kate Danborough whether she was drawn to real life stories more than fictional stories these days.
3: I'm much more now than I used to be. I, I am I'm feeling less and less inclined to tell stories that uh, not interesting or significant or relevant to us all.
1: Why is that? I'm not sure. It's probably just growing up,
3: getting older, having children, seeing the world in a mess, and, and feeling like if, there's a, if there is an opportunity to, to combine both, I think you should be able to have theatrical brilliance and also tell a really important story. I don't think there should be any delineation that you can do one or not the other.
1: David's book was called The Boy Who Wouldn't Die, and it came out a couple of years ago, and it was it very well received. Obviously, a lot of things in that book were very shocking. And, um, and Kate read it, and she was looking for a, for a way to interpret re- what was happening with refugees in Australia and putting it on stage. And she actually asked David himself to be part of the development of the work and then actually perform in the work himself, which was, which was very interesting. One of the very interesting art, uh, incidents that happens in the book is that when David Vincent arrived in Melbourne, he was walking along Brunswick Street, and uh, an Indigenous man walked up to him, shook him by the hand, and said, welcome to Australia. And he was sort of shocked by this, actually, and he hadn't thought about Australia being um, indigenous, um, having an indigenous um, population. He thought of it always as a white man's land, so he was sort of shocked by this. And and this is the event that inspired the work that came afterwards. Kate actually said that the idea of First Australians um, acknowledging new arrivals was powerful and potent, and she thought it would be a great example to address what was happening in the current climate. But I, I was really interested in the ideas of what comes out of bringing real life into into art and to culture, and what that actually means. I mean, do you actually have to, list, you know, adhere to the story itself? Do you have to? plot things according to story because a real story never follows the dramatic arc or anything like that so can you tweak can you can you change things
0: i mean i think that it's it's interesting with when you make works like this and you are drawing from real life and drawing from people who are often alive there are some really difficult choices you have to make because you want to stay true to them but at the same time you are creating a a work of art you're creating an experience for an audience and you just you cannot replicate life completely true as it is so and, and, and often you can tell a story that's true even if it's not factually true. Um, I always have these arguments with friends. I, I sort of all my friends are either kind of non-fiction book readers or they're fiction book readers. and my non-fiction book readers are always friends are always like, you know life is so interesting as it is. why why do I need to to read fiction? And I always say, well, sometimes um, truth is captured. Better through fiction. Sometimes a painting captures something better than a photograph. It captures a feeling or a thought or complex emotions. Um, So I think that that's where a a truly great artist has to come in. I mean, she's not just a channel for reality, putting it on stage. She actually has to make a lot of editorial decisions.
3: And the the interesting ethics come in when you do include someone from the original story in the show, as you have with Team of Life, and we saw a few other shows like that at Melbourne this year, um, not least. Um, hip bone um, sticking out, which is Big Heart's incredible um, sort of three-hour epic um, about the Pilbara and the case of a of a of a boy in particular who died in police custody. Now that was made with the community. Um, who experienced that trauma and that tragedy? In fact, on the evening we saw it, his own mother was in the audience. Um, and Big Heart's kind of uh, kind of uh, way of working, as as they said in a video they we made with them, w- was they wouldn't begin to make a work like that without the kind of involvement of of their subjects. Um, but that's a decision, an artistic decision, and one obviously wrapped up in a lot of politics at the moment in Australia. But then you have. A third play, uh, The Trouble with Harry um, by Lachlan Philpot, which told the story of uh, an amazing story of the turn of the century uh, woman who lived as a man with a woman in Sydney. Um, and there you've got a subject who doesn't have any right to reply. And actually, in his programme notes, Philpott talks a lot about the ethics of that and whether or not he had the right even to tell the story. Um, and I think it's one that any artist basing work on true life will always ask themselves at some point in the process.
1: It's interesting you bring that point up because one of the interesting examples that came up in the last couple of years was um, The Secret um, the secret River, which was based on Kate Granville's book, Monica. I don't know if you remember um, that story. Kate Granville wrote a book about um, where she imagined what her great-great-grandfather would have been like. He was a convict. who came over from London and he was freed. And uh, he moved up to the Hawkesbury and he actually took some land for himself. And she imagined, based on historical records and and accounts and that sort of thing, um, what that would have been like for the Indigenous people who were living there at that time. And um, the book was actually very controversial because historians accused her of making up history and it became sort of this whole thing about whether an, a novelist can actually write history. And they accused her of of being of saying that fiction is an untrustworthy mechanism um, to understand the past. And, uh, and Kate Grenville was actually obviously um, quite a upset by the criticism and she replied to it a lot on her website and she actually wrote a book which was called Searching for the Secret River which she actually went through and, and spoke a little bit about it because she was aware of exactly these issues which is how can you actually create a work based on our, uh, based on real life Sorry, and, um, and, and, and still stay faithful to, to the actual real topics but it is very controversial.
0: I think with cases like that sometimes I don't understand why someone has to even go out and say that this is true or these are facts. Um sometimes it feels that in today's age we're so obsessed with works that are based on reality and we we kind of um we like to hear kind of confessional pieces and memoirs and it's it's gotten to this point where people don't seem to be comfortable just going out and saying this is fiction. This is a work of art. You know, I'm not sure if I agree with that actually. <laughs> <laughs> there's heaps of novels out there. <laughs> anyway, moving on.
1: <laughs> but often truth is stranger than fiction, as you say. So,
3: and there's plenty of work that obviously plays with that particular that particular one too. Not least the film with the same name.
1: Absolutely.
2: Um, I guess i'm I'm an artist, and I used recently in one of my works I used my own text messages, which kind of pulls in because, as Monica said at the start, it was a lot of editing for me, and i it I had some big decisions and kind of battles with myself about what I would leave in and what I wouldn't leave in I ended up I definitely wanted to take out everyone's names and all those kind of distinctive personal things, but um, I ended up changing it quite a lot. I decided that. No one really knew because they were were just my text messages and I wanted to kind of use them in a different way to paint a picture about our language using SMS. So I think artistic licence goes a long way and in that case I decided that I could change it as much as I wanted.
3: It's interesting that you were worried about the people around you. If you were the subject of this, it was the people around you. Of course, every story is not just the story of one person and often the problems occur when it's actually the kind of Subsidiary characters around somebody being written or or recreated in art that have the problems. We've just had a piece on site by Henry Barnes, our film journalist, who's gone out to speak to. The characters that appear in film biopics, but not the famous characters, not the Jimi Hendrixes or, or the Ray the Rays or uh, all those. He talks to the kind of family and friends and, and they often feel very misrepresented by film biopics and they don't have the right to reply. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good read. Uh, and uh, not least uh, because people talk about that theme of trustworthiness. You know, you don't have a call on artists to be trustworthy about your story. And it's, you know, who's telling the truth in any case?
1: I think um, Peter Carey actually said uh, when he wrote The the True History of the Kelly Gang, he just made it all up.
0: This is The Guardian Australia's Culture Podcast.
3: If you want to find out more about the shows we've talked about on today's podcast, go to theguardian.com and click on Culture.
1: Another interesting show that was at the Melbourne Festival, which uh, Nancy and I went to see and we both really enjoyed, was called Hello, Goodbye, Happy Birthday. And uh, the show is uh, what what Rosalind Oates, the creator and director, calls headphone verbatim theatre. And it looks at two bookends of a life, a birthday party of an 18-year-old and a birthday party of an 80-year-old and uh, and the issues that um, she felt when she attended these two parties. This is Rosalind talking about why she is depicting age or why she's exploring age in her show.
2: I do feel a bit like I've been shining a torch in an area that doesn't get looked at. I mean, I think we hear a lot from policymakers and caregivers in the aged care sector, but actually hearing the voices of people having the lived experience of being in aged care, um, I feel like that's a voice I haven't haven't heard very often.
1: What's really great in the show, and Nancy, let me know what you think. I think you agreed with me. It it was really curious the way she structured it in that there were six performers, three young people and three older people. And often she mismatched the monologues so that the old people were talking like the young people and the young people were talking like the old people. And so it was the sense of initially you were sort of jolted by the a, a, an older person, a senior actor, speaking very quickly and speaking uh, about text messages and using young slang, which was startling. And, uh, and then there was also the Uh, very young-looking people um, talking about concerns like Alzheimer's and looking after their aged partner and that sort of thing, which was startling but I think actually kind of great too. What did you think, Nancy? It was super
3: funny. It was one of the funniest shows that we saw at the festival, I think. Uh, Not least, you know, uh, a uh, 70-year-old in kind of pop socks sort of raving away to some uh, trance uh, at an 18-year-old's party and talking about... The snogs they'd had the day before, and all that kind of thing. But obviously, they had real moments that just hit you, hit you in the face with the kind of emotion as well. Um, particularly by the younger cast performing, uh, performing the monologues of of people ultimately close to death. Um, so, as you say, it jolted you because of uh, the appearances and because of what they were saying. And um, it, it was it was you know a really successful show in that sense.
1: One of the other shows that's coming up um, is called 17, which is on at Belvoir next year. It's on from August until September. And uh, this play was actually written and created by Matthew Witted, who is a regular creator. And he's also playing with the idea of age. And in fact, the uh, he's actually written it specifically for the performers who will be in the show, Peter Carroll, John Gaden, um, Barry Otto, Judy Farr, who are sort of elder statesmen of the theatre. And he wrote it specifically for them, but the theatre, Story is actually about 17 year olds leaving school and discussing their snogs and discussing the last days of school. And it's it's really interesting. He said that he wanted to to draw on this because we don't often see old people talking about sexual things or stupid things or being silly, and he wanted to see that on stage, and he wanted to actually see them talking about things that young people talk about. So it's quite a similar idea. Then. It's a similar idea, yeah. It's executed in a very different way because, obviously, Rosalind um, Oates in Hello, Goodbye, Happy Birthday draws on headphone verbatim, so um, she, the actors are actually performing literally the words whereas um, Matthews actually created a completely different narrative.
3: But the thing that's the same is they realise the power of appearances, and I think that is essentially part of the taboo of having older people uh, in theatre, on film, in any sense. It's it's appearances, and what um, Rosalind's piece was so successful for was jolting you out of that because what you saw was not what you were getting. Um, It's funny you should mention Peter Carroll. The last time I saw him was also at Belvoir in Oedipus Rex. in his underpants, uh, in an extraordinary, visceral, powerful show. Um, and and that power was not least because you saw a, a half-naked man who was, yeah, he's one of the eldest statesmen of Australian theatre, but he was frail and, uh, and at the same time powerful. It was weird. Um, and I think we all came out of an hour's theatre, uh, you know, really, really shaken up by what we'd seen. It's kind of sad in a way that... That should be so shocking. You know, older people are squirrelled away, usually, so when you put them exposed like that on a stage, it has an impact.
1: It was also quite funny when we were waiting in the line to go and see Hello Goodbye, Happy Birthday, Rosalind's son, who would have been eight years old, was he noted that there was a lot of older people in the audience or in the queue waiting to get in, and he sort of said, oh, you never see older people going to the, the theatre. And uh, and Rosalind said, well, do you think that's because they want to see themselves on stage? And he said, well, yeah, I guess. And, and I think that's part of it as well, is that old people, you don't see them. I mean, you see the the very healthy, vigorous people, but you don't see a lot of old people... In the theatre,
0: you looking well, at me quizzically. I, I actually disagree with that because <laughs> my bugbear with theatre has always been that it seems to be a much older. Um, and a significantly older crowd than you would see at music events or even at the cinema, um, especially kind of more conservative theaters in Australia, like the Sydney theater companies. Those, those kind of theaters, you do actually often get um, a much older crowd. I think, um, but I think this topic is interesting, and I wonder if it's reflective of a general s- social kind of um, attitude towards older people, especially in Western cultures where. We seem to have this great emphasis, especially on in a capitalist society, on young people, on attractive young people and buying things to make yourself look more attractive and seeing attractive people in big Hollywood films. And that has kind of, you know, generally contributed to this prejudice against older people. Do you think there really is a prejudice
1: against older people? Um,
0: I I think that it's easy when you're living in this society to go no that's not the case I love my grandma you know and, and everyone I know loves their grandma but actually when you go to certain other countries so I've spent some time in China there is this form of great respect towards older people that you don't see here and it's it can be very subtle it can be the way that you speak to someone it can be the way that you do need to you often do need to go to an older person and ask them for certain advice or ask them their opinions on things and and yeah sometimes here that's you don't see that so i think it's subtle but it it makes a difference and that is why we have this feeling in our society the older we get the more depressed we become in in china Getting older is not as such a bad thing as it is here. People look forward to becoming a parent, a grandparent. Like Those things have a lot of esteem and honour, whereas here it's not the same.
3: I think one of the interesting things, though, and we talked about a prejudice against older people about the Melbourne Festival show, is there's also a prejudice against younger people, and younger people at the moment have it really tough. Um, I think there's an assumption that they are kind of vacuous, social media-obsessed, kind of uh, empty vessels And and actually, they have a lot of aspirations, and they have kind of plans for the future. um, Many of which are going to be really hard to kind of kind of pull through because of the current economic climate. And the show was really good on that point as well, because it didn't judge either set. It didn't judge the eighteen-year-olds or the eighty-year-olds. It just put them out there, and I think that balance gave everybody involved kind
1: of a greater humanity. I agree. It was it was great fun to see the the younger people, uh, or the younger people's words refracted through that older voice as well which was great
3: yeah I mean it's interesting how much this links up to our last theme you know the fact that it's a verbatim piece uh, and that the director felt it was important to actually use not just their words but the cadences of the words too we're seeing that a lot more in theatre and it sort of feels like the next step uh, of verbatim theatre which perhaps had got a little bit tired for a while
1: We've got a great uh, quote that uh, Rosalind got from one of the interviews that she actually did where she was actually speaking to one of the characters, Ray. Well, he wasn't the character, he's a real person. <laughs> um, and talking about how he interacted with the younger person.
0: Yesterday, I, I came from seeing Naomi to the lodge and the, oh, I thought, don't know whether to go back home I'll go to the TAB and I thought, oh, I've had my bets. I'll come back here. So I waited at the tram stop, and there's a l- young girl in the tram stop, and she turned around, she looked at me, and she said, You're
2: cute. <laughs> What's cute about me, I don't know. <laughs>
1: I just thought there was a really interesting uh, interaction between an old and a young person. And he was generally... Rosin told me that she, he was generally so sort of shocked by a, a young person interacting with him.
3: Not not
1: least calling him cute. Not least calling him
3: cute. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I tell you what, it makes you realise how well the young actor nailed that voice because, because it sounded just like him.
1: It's interesting, though, because exactly the idea of, of mismatch about where the work comes from is, is related to hello, goodbye, happy birthday... Um, People are not expecting work to come from these unusual sources.
2: I was thinking about the child prodigy artists who are only like um, young, like five years old, and they make paintings. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular called Alita Andre, who's from Melbourne. She's now seven, but she had her first exhibition, solo exhibition at the age of two in Melbourne, and now she shows in New York and all over the world. Her paintings sell for about $25,000. Um and it's just interesting to think about um, how when you don't know somebody's age, what people then think of the work and what they think when, after they find out the age, I guess. And it also reflects back on abstract art because the thing I find really interesting about this is that the statement of people looking at abstract art and saying, my child could do that. And in this case, they have and it kind of reflects back on abstract art itself in that way.
0: There's, for me, hearing this story, which I, I found very funny when I first heard yeah, about it, um, you know the idea of a three-year-old having a painting that sells for millions of dollars. Um, there's a bit of an emperor's new clothes. No wait, is that right? Yeah, emperor's new clothes, kind of thing about it, where where you wonder if the the work itself is almost it's a bit of a joke on mm, the art establishment exactly. correct
2: yeah that's what I think and that's kind of why I think it's so interesting like she gives some works like elephant and unicorn or butterfly island and they're these amazing like and I've seen video of her making them it just looks like a kid playing and then but it sells to the um, art audiences and the critics all like go crazy over them and they get heaps of hype
0: I always so, remember my art teacher when I was I think I was already in high school maybe 14 and she told me that 4 year olds draw better than 8 year olds because by mm. the time you're 8 you've already learned that a sun is a circle with little spiky things and yep. you've learned a house is a square with a triangle but perhaps like a 3 year old hasn't learnt those rules yet so they really look at something and then they go down and they just express themselves with shapes and colours and in the end they capture something much more honest and beautiful than what a 7 year old or 8 year old will capture so it'll be interesting to see with this young artist what happens to her as she gets older if she starts becoming trapped in these tropes and suddenly her work is not as honest as it was when she was three years old two yeah years old.
2: definitely we all get so like confined to conventions. When we get older. You never get, where are they now, for child prodigies, do you?
3: <laughs> I just hope she doesn't do a Drew Barrymore. Though actually it worked out okay for her in the end. But you know with the like, child actor thing. You know, now we have these child painters, we're going to see that spiral into yeah. decline too. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, but it's funny, on the other end of the spectrum, late, kind of sort of older artists are getting a huge amount of attention at the moment. There's some really big international exhibitions for the late works of Turner and the late works of Rembrandt. And I think there's a kind of reconsideration now about... The value of creativity at both ends of life, um, and that um, it's not all about the young, fresh, emerging talent. It could be the the kind of talent straight out of the womb, or it could be the kind of talent at the end of the life. Because a life lived, I mean, how much more have you got to put into your art at the mm-hmm. age of eighty than you do at the age of two?
2: People often associate creative genius with being young and very youthful, but a lot of artists work in a different way where they. Experiment over and over again for their entire life, and they're perfectionists, so they just keep doing things and keep doing things until they get them right. So it may not be until they're 80 that they produce their masterpiece. Do they get
1: trapped though? I know I've spoken to some artists who get trapped into being in a particular form, or people expect that their work will be the same and then they find it difficult to break out of it.
2: Yeah, definitely, but I think that happens with all artists, young or old,
1: and musicians and actors, and mm. yeah, everyone expects the same stuff. This is Guardian Australia's Culture Podcast. And so our last segment, uh, and our regular segment, is looking forward to what's happening in the month coming ahead. And there's so many things that are coming up uh, in the next couple of months, so we're going to look ahead to November. Um, For me, I feel like I've been working on this for months and months and months, and the anticipation is killing me. There's two blockbuster exhibitions opening in Sydney in November, one which is Pop to Popism, which is at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and Chuck Close, which is opening at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And these two are actually um, the latest in the International Art Series. And I think of all the series, I think these are the two that Work together and have a great conversation together. Um, more than previous examples, where it was painting, I'm sorry, America painting a nation, with, which was paired with Yoko Ono, and there was also Francis Bacon, which ran at the same time as Anish Kapoor, which was kind of a curious uh, dialogue. These two, um, just sit, they sit together quite well. Um, the pop to popism covers 1950s, the late mid 1950s through to the 80s, and has all the um, the ones that you expect, the Warhol, the Lichtenstein, Jeff Koons. But there's also some interesting Australian artists in there who are um, like Martin Sharp and Brett Whiteley. And there's some female pop artists, which we don't often consider as well, Sydney Sherman, Bridget McLean. I think this is a really great exhibition. I'm really looking forward to seeing how, um, how pop art changed the art landscape in a lot of ways. And it, it works really well with Chuck Close. Chuck Close is an American artist who is still practising and, and working. He's well known for his portraits of um, celebrities. He's photographed a, l- a lot of them and he also paints a lot of them too. And he has really unusual techniques and he's not regarded as a pop artist as such, but he certainly was influenced by them. He actually worked, I believe, with Liechtenstein. So these are really interesting dialogues to have together. And I think I'm really looking forward to going to both of them and to hopefully doing them all in one day.
3: Anyone who can uh, get a whole lot of celebrities, Hollywood A-listers, to turn up to a Vanity Fair studio without makeup for their latest uh, their latest photo shoot is definitely worth our attention. I mean, and that's that's his commercial work, let alone his more artistic work.
1: Absolutely, and, and interesting. Sort of reflecting on celebrity, which obviously the pop art artists did a lot too. So,
3: what about you, Nancy? Well, I'm a recent arrival, um, can you tell from the accent, in uh, Sydney, and, and therefore I've sort of been bedding in here and, and, and enjoying everything that the city has to offer. But I am making my first trip to Tasmania in November. I'm very excited to visit Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art. Obviously, David Walsh's amazing um, megalith uh, on uh, in Hobart, and I'm there to see River of Fundament, um, Matthew Barney's film, which obviously played at Adelaide um, Festival earlier this year, but it's getting a new outing with a huge amount of work um, at the museum. So I'm very excited about my first visit to Hobart. And obviously, I'm really looking forward to seeing Mona, but I also want to get beyond its four walls um, and explore the rest of the art scene in Hobart and Tasmania. So I'm hoping to kind of tack on a few extra days after my trip.
1: What are your expectations of Mona?
3: Well, it's odd. There's two books out at the moment uh, that are slightly uh, shaping my expectations. Obviously, David Walsh's own autobiography has just been published, but there's also a book, The Making of Mona. And I think it's kind of the making of the Mona myth in a way. David Walsh is Mona. He is sort of Tasmania at the moment. Uh, Well, uh, him and Richard Flanagan after his Booker Prize win. Um, But I really want to kind of understand what this man is because he's just, you know channelled millions of pounds into this new museum for his hometown. And that seems like the most amazing act. But I kind of want to understand uh, him a bit more. And I think until I see the work, until I see the place, I won't.
0: Nancy, we're dollars here, not pounds.
3: True, true, true.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not quite a native yet.
0: (laughs) Anna, what are you looking forward to this month?
2: I'm looking forward to Corroboree, Sydney. Um, It's coming up 20th. The 30th of November. It's kind of all over the city, um, but the main events happen at the Sydney Opera House. Um, One of the main things I'm looking forward to is the The (laughs) Bangara Dance Company's 25th anniversary concert, which I think will be pretty spectacular. They're performing on the forecourt of the Opera House. There's also lots of events at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and lots of conversation events, which I think will be really interesting. Um, there's some conversations with Redfern Now people as well as Adam Goods in conversation with Hedy
0: Perkins. I think that'll be great. Um, and I'm looking forward to Kimbra, whose uh, our latest album came out only a few months ago, The Golden Echo. It's definitely my favourite album of the year. I listened to it over and over and over again when it came out. Um, and so she's only doing two stops, I believe, in Sydney at the Metro Theatre on November 20th and Melbourne at the Hi-Fi on November 22nd.
1: What's your favourite Kimber song?
0: Um, well, I really like 90s music, even though a lot of people shut that down. It, it It's a song that doesn't sound like her, so maybe that's why people didn't really like it. Um, there's a song called... Oh, what's it called? The one where she's talking about settling down with someone. Oh, I'm sure. Can you what- sing it? Um, no, but I if I had my ukulele, I could play it. I've been I've been practicing. Uh, uh, you have a ukulele. Yeah, that's you off the team. <laughs> I've been practicing. That's.
1: I was going to say that's the next uh, podcast is musical instruments you should play. Oh my
0: god, definitely. I'll bring my ukulele next time. What's wrong with the ukulele? <laughs> It is kind of nerdy, but it's a really good – because I was was on a camping trip, right? It's a really good instrument for when you're camping because it's really small and portable. You can bring it anywhere. Like a recorder. It's, I actually <laughs> – I was in a recorder club at school. So. I'll
2: play the triangle. <laughs> there you go. We've got a
1: band. Band's beginning back together. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's heaps more to find out about all the shows that we've spoken about today. So go to theguardian.com and click on the culture section. So we're all going home to practice our instruments Um, from now on. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Anna. And I'd also like to say a very big thank you to Jason, our technical wizard, and, uh, and Miles, who is our producer genius. So thank you, both of you, for joining us and for helping us through this, our first Guardian Australia Culture podcast. We'll see you next
2: month.